Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, and here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. And I am very excited about today's show. I think this show addresses all three of those areas, healing, spirituality, and social transformation. And I've been looking forward to this show and having this in-depth conversation with my guest for a couple of months now. My special guest today is Dr. Benjamin Perkis, who's a licensed psychologist in the state of New York in the USA. And uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Dr. Perkis. He uh, followed his intuition and his love for helping people and his love for essential oils to develop a unique approach that he calls aroma freedom technique that uh, is not only helping a lot of people to enjoy their life a lot more and reduce unnecessary suffering, but he's also uh, has a gift for codifying information and organizing material, and he's developed a way in a short period of time to teach lay people how to do the technique. And from my experience of being exposed to Dr. Perkis's work, I think that a lay person can do a lot with what he has brought into the world. And I think a qualified professional in the healing arts could integrate this and even do more with it. So I'm very excited about today's show and introducing the world to Dr. Benjamin Perkis and to Aroma Freedom Technique. So I'm going to bring Dr. Perkis into the conversation now. Dr. Perkis, welcome to Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. Well, thank you, David. I'm really happy to be here. And ever since we started our conversation a couple of months ago, I really appreciated all the uh, understanding that you have brought of neuroscience and uh, spirituality and personal development, and that you were able to really see what I was doing and even help me to see um, the broader context that it lies within. So I'm really excited to be here today as well. You're welcome, and we'll have a chance to get into that. So uh, as you know, this podcast is a little, and, and, and I'm also doing videos now, so it's also going to be on YouTube, but my interviews are a little bit different from most of the interviews that are out there. It's kind of a throwback to a time in the past where things were a little slower and there was an opportunity to really do in-depth interviews. So this is uh, kind of, a, this show is kind of in honor to the in-depth interview, kind of resurrecting like the Phoenix in-depth interview. And so we have plenty of time in the beginning for my guests to purposefully tell their story in such a way that the viewer or the listener will have a real sense of who you are in your journey so that later on in the interview when we talk specifically about aroma freedom technique, there'll be a very powerful context for listening so that the conversation can be as powerful as possible. So I'm gonna turn the show over to you for a while and just give you a chance to 
tell your story in that kind of a way that brings us up to speed. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so let's see. Um, I guess I'll go all the way back to um, when I was growing up. My my mother was into yoga, and uh, my parents were kind of progressive, and so I was exposed to body mind types of things really uh, for a long time in my life. And I got my my first degree in philosophy, so I have a kind of a broad context. And then when I moved into the psychology realm after after my undergraduate. I knew that I did not want to be boxed in by one particular approach because I knew that psychology was kind of a splintered field. And um, there are a lot of people claiming that theirs was the only way to do psychology. And I never really was interested in that. So um, my doctorate was from Duquesne University, which actually is an existential phenomenological humanistic program, uh, which is really, and this is really where I learned to listen really well and just kind of let uh, what's happening with a person to emerge without imposing my theoretical foundation on it. I did my um, internship at University of Ottawa in Canada. And again, this was because they have a very broad approach. And I studied really all the major schools of therapy, everything from psychodynamic, existential, cognitive behavioral, humanistic, uh, gestalt. We had emotional focus. Um, we had Jungian. So I really had a broad understanding of all the major schools of therapy. And so then finally, uh, when I got into my own practice. Um, I was bringing everything that I had learned, but it was, it's funny, after all that training, it took me about two weeks to realize that I needed some more tools. Um, that just talking with people about their issues from the past and about what they were, where they wanted to go in life, I just felt that I needed some tools that would really dig in more on the brain level, more on the physiology um, to help them make those shifts. So I got my early training in EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. This was back in the late 90s. And um, that technique really made a big impact on me uh, because it's really a, um, a way of identifying these negative memories and the thoughts and the feelings and the feelings in the body, what we call the memory complex. And uh, instead of just talking about or instead of just forcing a, a person to just kind of confront their fears or confront their, um, their phobias and just kind of like try to muscle through it, this process actually took a brain-based approach and helped people to process those memories. Um, EMDR uses eye movements or bilateral stimulation. And uh, although it's much faster than traditional methods, and I loved it for that reason, and I used it for a number of years, um, a lot of people also felt like it was kind of grueling, that it was uh, people would feel very tired afterwards uh, and need a lot of integration processing time. So. It was a great advance, and I really have a great deal of respect for Francine Shapiro, who invented that process. Uh, but I kept looking and learning. Um, I learned about EFT, so this is the tapping. A lot of people are familiar with this, tapping on acupuncture meridian points to clear away um, the, emotional, the emotional charge that is kind of trapped, you could say, in the meridians. And uh, that's a very fast technique, and people are able to... Um, shift very quickly uh, into more relaxed states. Um, and a lot of the other things, I got into neurofeedback when I learned how you, we can actually program our brains um, directly to create different states of awareness, whether it's more focus or more relaxation. I had a neurofeedback machine for a while, so I used that. So I've always been a seeker and a, a learner, and I would take whatever I liked from that, integrate it, and then kept moving on. Um, and then it was about almost 16 years ago, my wife and I were exposed to essential oils. 
we started using Young Living essential oils and we just used them in our, um, in our home, in our daily life. And, uh, and they made a profound impact for people. So we would teach classes on how people could, you know, maintain wellness with essential oils, body, mind, and spirit type things. And, uh, and that just kind of grew. We became deep, deeply involved with using the oils, but I felt like there was kind of a uh, split in me because I had my psychology practice, which I loved. And I also had our essential oils business, which I loved helping people, you know, to use the oils to uh, impact their lives. But I didn't quite figure out how to get them together. I knew that the oils were relaxing or they could be energizing, but I wasn't really sure how could I actually use it in my clinical practice, you know? And there were some techniques out there that used oils where people would be laying on a massage table and for a few hours smelling different oils and having emotional releases. I never really resonated with that approach, mostly because um, it didn't really fit into my clinical model where people were coming in for a little less than an hour sitting across from me. And, you know, I just didn't, didn't work for me to, to do it in a different way. Um, oh, and I learned kinesiology, muscle testing, and I was very impressed with different systems and ways that um, people could just very uh, quickly and succinctly go and identify, for instance, where a, uh, where the person's energy got blocked um, and release an emotion from that. But the trouble with kinesiology was it wasn't something people could do on themselves and it wasn't something that they could teach to others easily. So um, my first breakthrough came when I started experimenting with using the essential oils, uh, you could say in the place of the eye movements with EMDR. So instead of having people using eye movements or bilateral stimulation, I would have them um, identifying the, the negative memory, you know, traumatic memory with an emotional charge, and they would, I would have them smell specific essential oils. There was a Young Living blend called Trauma Life, which was specifically designed for, uh, for trauma. And people would smell the oil, and they would notice that it just seemed like the memory started to dissolve or break apart and um, very gently, and much more gently than I had seen with EMDR. So I had that in my toolbox, and I used that with people who, uh, who had traumatic things, either recently or even long ago, that they were struggling with. And um, I actually went and I taught that overseas. Um, I taught that. That was my kind of my one trick pony that I had because I knew it worked so well for um, – for these traumatic memories. But it was about a year and a half ago that I really felt this inspiration that I wanted to find something that could work for everybody and for all types of issues because uh, you know that's a specific population, say post-traumatic stress. And but I know that all of us, a lot of our suffering comes from you know the little the disappointments, the hurts, the frustrations, the things that everyday people experience, you know, big or little traumas. Um, I thought, well, if this works so well on those traumatic memories, it should be able to do something for all these things. So it was um, last spring that I had just finished a, a lecture tour and um, I just felt like I had enough information. I just had to put it together. So I told my wife, um, I said, you know that book that I've been wanting to write for 20 years? Because I've always known that there was kind of a book in me. In fact, one of my uh, favorite times in my life was when I was in my mother's attic writing my dissertation. And that may seem strange to some people, but I just really enjoyed it. I loved synthesizing ideas and, and writing about them. So uh, I told her, um, I gave myself a month. I said, I would work better under a deadline. I, I have 30 days. I'm going to write this book. So I was going to the library every day and I was writing this book. And this time there was no specific technique. There was just all the observations that I'd had clinically over the years, understanding 
um, how the negative thoughts arise from these negative experiences, understanding how the oils seem to shift the uh, state of consciousness instantly, how it works in the brain with the amygdala. So I knew all of that, but I didn't have the order down. And uh, one of the breakthroughs had come when I, um, I was reading a book on the inner voice. And uh, the inner voice is something that people notice when they meditate. They notice that there's this inner dialogue that seems to uh, always be occurring. And um, so I said, well, let me start there. And so I decided that the first part of the technique would be to, to set a goal for something that you want and then to listen, what does the negative voice say that tells you this can't happen? And I found that this is a very rich source of information. So instead of me using a theory to try to figure out where someone's block is coming from, I'm just asking them, I say, well, what does the negative voice say? Sure enough, people will tell you. If you say, if someone says what they want, you say, well, what does the negative voice say that tells you it can't happen? There's going to be an answer. And then I realized that, you know, well, so let's work on this. Let's take the negative voice. Well, how do you feel? Where do you feel it in your body? And then once you have that, then you're tapping into this memory complex. So then I say drift back to an earlier time when you felt the same way. And more often than not, about 90% of the time, people will go back to their specific memory or kind of like a movie of a whole bunch of times. So now they have the memory complex. And then I say, okay, now we're going to smell the essential oils. So um, I, I decided on a blend of frankincense because frankincense stimulates the pineal gland and uh, actually has some brain receptors that are specific to um, incensile acetate, one of the components in frankincense that relax. Lavender has uh, works on the opioid receptors and vanilla oil. Also, there's some research on that for um, affecting serotonin and dopamine. So the vanilla oil is in our Young Living Stress Away. So I say combine frankincense, lavender, and stress away oil, breathe the oils in, and then watch what happens. And then we just notice. And what happens is that negative memory that a person goes back to it starts to break apart, starts to dissolve. So I explain that. I say that that's what it's dissolving the memory complex. And we can get into a little bit of the, the there are some specific brain reasons why this happens, uh, which we can maybe talk about in a minute. But um, so I, I realized that if I put the, the steps in order, it was like turning a key in the mind and something seemed to be happening every time. And it was very profound and very gentle, powerful and quick. So I noticed it worked for myself. I started testing it out on my family, my friends, my clients, and everyone was having the same result where people, they would notice within, you know, about a 10 or 20 minute session that where they had felt hopeless or helpless about something, about reaching their goal, all of a sudden they were feeling empowered, like they can do it. And we realized that we were dissolving those memory complexes that were holding them back. So at this point, I only had 15 days left in my, um, in my challenge that I'd given myself to write the book in 15 days. So I set the goal that I'm going to write my book in 15 days. And sure enough, my negative voice was there. It was saying, that's not possible. That's too much pressure. No one can do that. Uh, there was a feeling of overwhelm. And I took myself back to a memory. I don't even know what it is now because it's kind of dissolved. But, uh, and I had the memory. I smelled my essential oils. Sure enough, after about 10 seconds, this thought popped into my head. I realized, oh, 150 page book, that's just 10 pages a day for 15 days. How hard is that? So I emerged from that knowing I write 10 pages a day for 15 days and my goal can be complete. And my inner resistance was gone. 
there was just nothing. I didn't even know that I had inner resistance. But once I did the technique, I realized that I had been holding back thinking it wasn't possible. So once that was gone, every day I would write my 10 pages. And then something kind of happened after four or five days. The, uh, like the, I could see the whole book in front of me. And it just kind of, then I realized that I was actually writing a book about a technique. So strange as it sounds, I kind of came to this. I was like the last to know that this was actually what I was creating. And, you know, I think it was a, a partnership with spirit that something was, uh, was wanted to come through. And all of my training over the years, all the little techniques I had learned, I realized I had encountered all of them for a reason. And it was kind of like this broad gathering of information. And then it all kind of synthesized in this process. And then what surprised me, I thought I would write the book and, you know, every author hopes that, you know, they'll sell a million copies and everything. Well, what happened with, to me was a little different. I started um, doing trainings. People were asking me to go online and, uh, and to teach their group, maybe 10 or 15 or 20 people. And I would take everyone through this process. They would have their oils and I would lead them through this process. And people were just having these profound experiences. So, I mean, I was as surprised as anyone how fast it would work and how consistently it worked, but it seemed like every time we just, we got where we needed to go. So we actually, from that process, we created a certification program and now people can be certified aroma freedom technique practitioners and we have instructors now. So all this just in the last year has really blossomed because uh, I found something that is so simple and so duplicatable that people, everyday people are are really achieving wonderful things with it. So uh, now at this point, I'm just I'm just uh, pleased to be able to share it with the world and uh, really empower everyone to um, to reach their dreams by just releasing those blocks. Thank you so much. Uh, I have a lot of questions that are popping about the work, but before we go there, is it all right if I ask you a few questions about your own journey? Sure. So uh, obviously you are being guided by spirit in this process. How early in your life did you have a conscious relationship with the infinite? You know, it, in a way, it feels like I never didn't have one. Um, right. You know, I wasn't brought up in any strict religious tradition or anything. My father's Jewish. My mother was just broadly speaking Christian. And uh, we went to the Unitarian Church when I lived in Oneonta. So uh, just very broad. And like I said, you know, she was getting into yoga and meditation. So these things just kind of seemed natural to me. And, you know, like I never even really questioned, you know, people say, well, is there an afterlife? Is there God? Is there spirit? Like to me, that was like a non-question because it never seemed, it seemed so obvious that, that uh, this is, you know, we're spiritual beings having this human experience. So okay. uh, there wasn't really like one specific moment, like a near death experience or something where all of a sudden my eyes open. It's more, of course, as with everyone, you know, as I grew and developed, I would have different experiences of realizing, you know, more and more of a connection. Did you, have you had any formal in this lifetime? Have you had any formal spiritual teachers? Um, you know, I would, I would count my, um, there were two people that I would consider spiritual teachers. One was the person who, uh, headed the um, the yoga institute that my mother belonged to, um, and she would train us in breathing and body work and and some with meditation. Um, and then I had a philosophy professor who had actually um, gone through all of Western philosophy, and then um, 
started getting into Zen Buddhism and started meditating and had an awakening when he was able to connect, but he was able to connect it in a very articulate way. So my philosophical training was really a spiritual training, but it involved uh, really understanding uh, basic attitudes and viewpoints. And uh, he used a different method for how to dissolve them. But um, so I would say both my teachers were fairly Western. They were not really religious, but more uh, coming from a meditation slash inquiry perspective. I understand. Um, now your decision to close down your private practice, you know, it, you know, you had a lot invested in your career and you were married. What was that like for you to make that decision and get alignment with your family on that? What was that journey like for you? Yeah, well, it was interesting because um, I had always been in private practice. I always knew I wanted private practice. So I had set one up very early in my career. And, and uh, as it turned out, you know, I, I, I did well and um, I enjoyed it and my, my clients loved it. Um, I will say that I was always looking to learn something and I wasn't the type of therapist that just wanted people to be coming in week after week for years. That really wasn't, I didn't feel I was really serving people that way. So I was always interested in helping people to get what they needed and to move on. Um, and um, so actually my first shift came, I, sh I had shifted my practice to a video-based practice. Um, so actually before the book came out, uh, we were already traveling. And so I shifted uh, and the laws, you know, these days you can do telemedicine. So I was doing uh, some video-based sessions and uh, things like that. Uh, but it kind of, again, it kind of surprised me. I found myself doing all these trainings and teachings on with my aroma freedom technique. And I just felt like I was helping more people and reaching more people. And uh, not just because there's more people on a call than one, but because those people themselves were starting to reach people. And when I'm seeing a client, I'm only helping one person at a time. And then they may or may not help anybody beyond that. So um, we actually moved out to Utah for the year um, because I realized all my, all my work, most of my work was um, online. So we decided to move, but I do remember this moment when I was driving, uh, we were driving a U, well, I was driving the U-Haul. My wife was driving the van a day ahead of me and I was driving the U-Haul and it kind of, some, something hit me. I realized, I don't think I'm going to have a practice anymore. And I noticed that moment of fear, that kind of moment of, well, but this is how I've supported myself for 20 years. This is kind of my business model, what I'm used to. Uh, so I didn't really believe it at first. Um, it was just kind of like this thought, like, is this really, has this shift really occurred? But over time, as, as my training uh, business that I was building continued to grow, it just became clear to me that this was, this was the new reality for me was, you know, teaching and training. And it's really a dream come true because I always had wanted to, be a lecturer, teacher, speaker. I always enjoyed that. And to be able to do that full time and to help people everywhere really was a dream come true for me and a fulfillment for me. So then the, the practice just kind of, uh, it became clear that that was not really a good use of my time. So I still will do sessions here and there with people, but I'm always looking for ways to do a session with someone in a way that's going to reach more than just that person. So doing a demo where other people are watching is more beneficial because then not only is that person being helped, but the people who are watching will learn as well, or doing a, a, a podcast or something like this. Okay. Well, if it's all right with you, I'd like to segue into questions that are pertain more directly to the work itself. Sure. Okay. So 
One of the things that I always like to know when I'm beginning to explore a new field or some new work is what it can do and what it cannot do. And also, and then I also want to address the issue of that this work is going to be being used primarily by lay people, but it's also going to be incorporated into healthcare professionals' work, people who do different forms of energy work, body work, psychotherapy, uh, different forms of spiritual counseling, coaching. Um, and so I'd like you to address, as we begin the conversation, this part of the conversation, just to get some orientation. In your experience, what is this work good for? What can it do? What, it, what can't it do? What types of situations and people is it safe for lay people to work with? How do lay people know when they're getting in over their head? Let's just begin to create a safe and focused space for the work. Okay, great. And if I forget any of those pieces of questions, just remind me. But um, so one of the first decisions to make when I created this was who I was going to, who was I going to train in it? And of course, writing a book, first of all, means anyone who reads the book could give it a try and it's beyond my control. Uh, and I remembered that Francine Shapiro, when she created EMDR, she made a decision to only train uh, mental health professionals. You had to be a licensed, or at least a student or license of psychology, social work, chiropractic, something like that. Um, and I chose the opposite path because I also noted things like uh, EFT and a lot of the things in the energy psychology and the, in the tapping world and so on they go the opposite route and they train it as just a general lay technique and um, anyone can learn it. So I made the decision that from my experience, it looked, you know, I, I, I wasn't seeing things happening in it that gave me any cause to believe that people needed to have a degree to be able to do it. Um, so I chose to make it the training available to anyone. And uh, I encourage people who, read the book to try it on themselves first. Um, it can be a self-care tool and to try it on their family and their friends, take them right through the process. And I always tell people, if you stay with the steps, you're going to be fine. The only time people get stuck is if they veer off the steps and they're not doing it as directed. Now, um, so it's something that anyone can do for themselves, family, friends, um, as far as incorporating it into therapy Absolutely, it's a great addition to any type of therapy because you can fold it right in. So if you're already a coach, let's say you're already working with people on setting goals, being accountable, this piece just plugs in to clear out the negative thoughts that are holding people back or uh, from achieving those goals. Um, and it, it's not, I say it right in the book and I repeat it in the trainings, this is not therapy per se. It doesn't really set up a therapeutic relationship. Um, every session is designed to stand on its own. I designed it so that in every session, you're starting with your goal and then you're going clearing out the negative thoughts and you're ending with an affirmation statement and a power pose that uh, is an expression of kind of what you shifted from the beginning to the end of that session. And, and so each session kind of stands on its own. This is why I say you don't have to be a therapist to do it. Um, so the question of uh, who is it not appropriate for if, um, let's say, 
so a layperson were to start doing a session with someone, how would they know that they were in over their head or that right. uh, they really shouldn't be you know, doing this? I would say um, the, the things I say to look for, if a person um, is um, unable to focus long enough to be able to set a goal. In other words, they're just kind of all over the place and they can't even really start that point of, well, what do you want? And they, instead of answering that, they just keep talking or keep emoting, you know, then they're not ready for the process because um, you need to be able to kind of start with a clear enough head to be able to say that this is something that I want. So um, as far as referral to a professional therapist, that would be one, one key. Um, another would be if a person um, you know, they start the process and they just, um, their mind goes blank. They just can't hear any negative voice or they just, they feel numb. You know, that's also a sign that um, it could mean that they're dissociating, could mean that they um, have shut down in some significant way, uh, or maybe they have a brain injury and they just can't, literally can't process these questions, you know. So I would say that might be an example of where, they're not really appropriate for the technique and they should be working with a professional in that area. Um, uh, but generally speaking, when someone gets into the process, even if there's strong emotion, if they stay with focusing on the image, instead of getting caught up in the emotion and stay focused on the image and breathing the oils into it, it does break it down and dissolve and people come out the other side. And we've done, we have thousands of sessions now that we have, in our database and there people just don't have the types of problems that uh, you've heard of with other techniques that elicits a strong emotion and then people don't know what to do with it because we understand very clearly where the emotion is coming from what its purpose is and how to handle it and because the oils seem to have this direct effect on the limbic system and they're smelling the oils in this process it just it stops things from getting out of control it just doesn't doesn't seem to happen. So, um, you know, I would say that um, those are the main things that come to mind of when a person might be um, not appropriate. So even if someone has a very strong awareness of a very specific overwhelming trauma, like, uh, like a rape or like, um, or like something that happened in, in war, you would still feel okay about having that person go through and see what this could do for them working with the layperson? I would, because um, I, I believe that the technique will take them, it'll peel back a layer, it'll take them through what they need to get through uh, in that time. Now, if they find after doing that, that they just feel like they need more support, like they need to, you know, they'll be clear for a day or two and then they're feeling like more stuff is coming you know, then that might be a time to say, okay, minimally, let's have you working with a therapist alongside me because, you know, they need to know that there's someone there that they can turn to, to, uh, for emotional support or for, um, to help them gain a perspective. Um, so I would, I feel like you don't really know until you do a session. And then once you've done one, nothing's bad is going to happen. But if you find that, um, you feel like you need that, um, that connection with someone that you would get with a therapist or um, someone who has experience with PTSD. Like if a person, we don't treat diagnoses. So if a person has received a diagnosis, you know, we're not going to say, 
that we will treat PTSD because that's not what we're doing. We're not people are the EFT practitioners right. are not trained to notice all the symptoms and take them through a structured approach with PTSD. So if you're looking for help with PTSD, you need to have a licensed professional. So if there's a diagnosis that you already have been given, then um, you're working with your licensed professional for that diagnosis. This is more to help shift you from where you are to the next step of where you want to go. Have you considered compiling a list of qualified mental health care professionals who are also uh, certified in aroma freedom techniques so that if people are in, if a lay person is in that situation, they have an easy flow point? Yes. Yeah, that's actually, that's a, a project that we're working on. We have um, out of our certified practitioners, we have a handful that are also licensed professionals. So we are starting to compile that and that should be a resource that we'll make available on our aromafreedom.com website so that if someone, they have a diagnosis and they want a type of therapist that is able to use this process. And uh, yeah, so that's in the works. Well, that's exciting. Have you explored at least in your own life or with your own clients or patients, have you explored using this protocol to uh, enhance uh, people who are already in really good shape in an area, like for peak performance? Yeah, you know, I have, um, let me think of a couple of examples of that. I have one of my students, he is a musician, and um, he related an experience he had where he um, was trying to practice for a performance and he found that he just wasn't practicing well. Like he kept messing up and it wasn't going well and he was getting nervous about it. He took himself through an AFT process and it went back to a time, you know, I think when there was a recital and he had messed up and he uh, cleared that out and just had the emotional release. He said he had the best practice he's ever had since then and he did beautifully afterwards. So he's starting to um, actually put together a program for uh, performing for performing artists to use this. I have a practitioner in Japan who is starting to work with professional golfers with this. So absolutely, there's um, there can be a place for peak performance with this. How would you alter the protocol if you were like, let's say, let's say you were working with a PGA golfer who already is golfing at a high level. They don't experience, you know, any super pressing issue in their life, but they notice that they tend to be stuck in the middle of the pack in their results on the PGA Tour. And they have worked with their swing coach and everything, and their swing coach says, you know, the, your, your swing is great. You know, you're on the practice range, you're, you're great. Mm -hmm. On the putting green, you're great. Uh, your course management, you know what you're doing. But there's just something about, there's something between where you're at and where the top echelon of players are at, and we don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. if, if that person came to you, would you have a way of working with them in the context of this work? And how would you alter the protocol, if at all? Yeah, well, absolutely. What's, what's really neat with this process is that it's designed to basically enhance the growth process that we all experience every day. Every day we, are, we have the things that we want in life and that we are pursuing, whether it's our job, our relationship, our golf game, whatever it is. So um, 
no matter what the problem is, we always start with setting a goal. So in a case like that, it would just be a case of uh, having a person set the goal. And the goal could be, for instance, if, if they've never hit below a 70 before, their goal would be to hit a 69 or a 65 or something like that. Um, or the goal, maybe there's a specific tournament coming up. Their goal is to win that tournament. So what's interesting, when you set a goal, this is what we learned from NLP and lots of other um, psychology sides of things. When you set a goal, it's going to trigger anything in you that disagrees with that. So uh, we all have an identity that we have developed in our lives through growing up. So a golfer is going to develop an identity and understanding of this is what I can hit. This is what I can't hit. Here's where I do well. Here's what I do poorly. And if they set a goal that challenges that identity, for instance, there may be some part in that doesn't believe they could win that tournament. So he, let's say he, it's a he, he sets the goal and then uh, he's going to listen in and he's going to hear if there's something in him that says you can never do that or you're not as good as him or whatever it is. We follow the same exact 12 steps and we're clearing out whatever it is. The thing is that two different people, two different people setting the same goal will have completely different things that are blocking them. So in either case, you just start with the goal and um, the goal could be very broad or like a specific, let's say like um, winning the specific tournament, or the goal could be about a specific part of their process. Like if they're always slicing, the goal could be whatever the output of slicing is to right. the hood to hit it. So it could be a very small thing or a big thing. And if there's something it's, we're going to capture, if there's something in them that's blocking from that. So the fact that the process is based on sort of a fundamental positive approach to the unfoldment of life, it, it lends itself to many different possible starting points without having to tweak the fundamental structure of the technique. Absolutely. And I think it's because it's actually based on how the human mind actually works. So right, that's what I, that's what I meant. The fact that it's grounded in reality, that it's a, it's based on a theory of life and of how human beings function that is accurate. It's an accurate enough map. Yeah. It doesn't have to be tweaked a lot. Yep. Absolutely. And for those of, for those of your listeners who have done any philosophy, uh, even the whole structure of consciousness is what we call intentional, which means that uh, nothing exists until we intend it in the world. And so this is whether it's seeing things in the world or uh, human beings are always creating projects. We're always projecting ourselves into a future. And that's how we get from here to there. If I wanted to become a doctor, I have to project that future and then move towards it. So because we're always doing that, uh, we're just taking this process and we start with that's a given. You're going to be, you want something, you're going to be projecting towards something. And then we go through and find out what's blocking. Right, right. And uh, so that's exciting that it's an elegant enough model that it doesn't have to be, they're not a lot of like special case kind of corollaries. That's, yeah. a, that's a good omen uh -huh. in terms of like, uh, it's very parsimonious, you know, the, it's very elegant. So that's a good indicator that you're onto something. Have you experimented with the pros and cons of trying to do the work in a group or quasi group setting? Yeah. Um, 
So when I first created it, I imagined it as an individual or one-on-one. -on -one. And then um, I did it in some small groups. And what's interesting in a small group or even a large group is that uh, as the practitioner, I'll say, uh, I may not know what everyone's goals in the group are. So everyone is writing down and they're kind of tracking their own process. So let's say there's 10 people or even 100 people in a group. I would be just guiding them, identify your goal, identifying how possible it feels, and then what's the negative thought. So it's more like a guided, almost a guided meditation. You could say I'm guiding people, instructing them what to look for in their own process. Uh, and what I find is it seems to work equally well in groups, small, larger online groups, especially it works well because people can be in their own space and they can um, have that experience. I would say there's a percentage, hard to know how to put it, maybe 20% of the time, a person might need more specific guidance. Let's say they get lost somewhere in the process or they can't go, they process more slowly than everyone else in the group. So there's going to be, say in a group, you could think of it like a standard curve where there's right. some people that are going to have this powerful life-changing experience. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to have a good experience and there's going to be a few people that it just wasn't right for them. They just either couldn't open up in the group, even though you don't have to share what your process is in the group. You know, some people are distracted by others or just emotionally, they just aren't able to connect it unless they're doing a one-on-one. -on -one. So I would say most, of, most people do great in groups, but there's that percentage that need one-on-one. -on -one. I, I was imagining as you were talking, I was imagining a large room where you're in front of the room and you're leading a large group through something like this. And then you have like four or five assistants that are in the room and if someone's having a really hard time, they could raise their hand. And then there were these little side rooms off the main room. Mm -hmm. and they could go with an assistant, something like that. Sure. And another, yeah. another flash I had was I could see how this could be used very powerfully on a thematic basis. Like once people have the, once they're not beginners at the technique in the technique anymore, and you know, they don't need any individual coaching. I could imagine say a group of 500 of us, getting together virtually for a particular gathering and we have an agreement before the gathering that this gathering is going to be focused on X, you know, world peace or, or vibrant health or financial abundance or something like that. And we have that agreement and then we get the group synergy of all these hearts and minds and bodies together and then you're guiding us through this. Uh, I, I just almost saw it as a, uh, as a powerful catalyst, not only for personal transformation, but also for cultural transformation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to respond to a couple of those things, we do have something called the immersion experience where we will do an introduction to this process. And then we have everybody, everybody actually goes into pairs and they give and receive the AFT uh, process so that they really get comfortable. They get to receive a session and they get comfortable giving a session. And then we have instructors that go around and can answer questions and make sure everyone is getting the process correctly. And then we do a group clearing. Same thing. If there's people who need individual help, they can. But this other piece about having themes, um, we do that a lot. We do that in the certification program. And at other times I'll lead a webinar on a specific topic, like maybe around Valentine's Day, I'll do one on love. And so we're talking about the, the experiencing love or being in a harmonious relationship or something like that. So we might kind of set a broad theme 
And then what's nice is we can get some discussion going and people can start sharing what their goals and hopes and dreams are that might trigger other people to realize, oh yeah, I want that too. Or, you know, I'm, I want it this other way. And then also we allow people, uh, they don't have to, but if they're able to share what the negative voice is saying and it helps other people realize, yeah, other people, they have those negative voices and doubts too, or here's the feeling. So, and then there's this kind of that intangible also, like you say, if this, there's a group energy, uh, but the, it's very, very profound when there's all this clearing happening. And then at the end, especially, it's kind of uh, exuberant because everyone goes into what we call the power pose, which is uh, after they've released the negative voices, there's no more negative voice now. They have their positive voice of where they want to go. We have the smell oil and they get into a power pose, which is kind of like this. It's arms up, either chest out or arms just up. And uh, that comes from the research from Harvard University, Amy Cuddy, where she found that standing for two minutes in a power pose, um, like, like I was showing you, uh, will raise testosterone and lower cortisol. So it puts us in a confident but relaxed place, which is just where you want to be. That's kind of that zone. So uh, we end the process and we're smelling an essential oil. Like I love the Young Living Transformation or Believe Oil and, um, or even simple lemon oil works. And um, when you're smelling the oil, we're also pairing the oil with the feeling you have now because the brain always works by association. So we're forming a strong association between the smell and that good feeling. So when everyone in the room is doing that, it's just, it's very, uh, it's very exuberant to see, um, see people just feeling so good afterwards. Uh, this, that, what you're describing for, for, for me personally is very exciting because I have a firm belief that for many reasons, the synergy of individual work and group work is really where we're going and uh, for many reasons. And I'm very excited, look forward to speaking with you off the air about how I might be able to become a more active part of that because I think that at a community level right now is really viable and it's really what's needed. And I think the technology exists to pull it off and to make it very cost effective for people because that's an issue for many people these days. I mean, I could see, you know, 500 people coming together online for a very nominal fee, yeah. very nominal. And still, you know, you're able to support your family and do what you need to do. It's very exciting to me. Well, let me just follow up on that for a minute because th there's kind of a natural progression that again, I, I did not plan this, but it kind of happened when people started doing the AFT process, they started feeling so good. There's a natural impulse. Once we've discovered something, we want to share it with others. So um, people wanted to be able to go out into the world and teach this and see other people have the same type of experiences that they were seeing in the group I was teaching. So we have a level two program called the instructor certification where uh, we train people how to, how to train others. And then they are uh, really enjoying going out and doing these immersion classes um, as well as creating, uh, I have each of my students creating a, a specific class that is um, kind of their own synthesis of AFT where they want to take it. AFT doesn't change. AFT is, is what it is because it works. But like, for instance, I have a, uh, one of my teachers is a midwife and she has worked with so many women who have had difficult labor, difficult birth experiences, and it might stop, you know, so then if they had difficulty with birth A, they're trying to have birth B and there's all that emotional residue left over from birth A. So she does classes to helping people release the, the emotions connected with their birth experiences so they can have a positive experience or 
Uh, someone else does one on uh, releasing spiritual blocks, things that happen in church that hold people back. So, uh, you know, people are taking this very thing we're talking about, getting a themed uh, class, and then doing the clearings related to that theme. Now, in terms of, uh, you know, one issue, of course, when you invent something and you innovate it and you bring it into the world, is on one hand, you want to maintain the integrity of the work, but on the other hand, you're giving it away to the world. So there's boundary issues involved. Like, for example, you've come up, and we can talk about how you came up with them, but you've come up with specific essential oils and essential oil blends to be used at different phases in the 12-step process you've developed. And I'm assuming that for the integrity of the work, you'd like people to stick with that. But on the other hand, you probably want people, once they reach a certain level, to be able to explore and experiment and come up with their own applications. And they might discover new oils or new blends that work even better or work in those situations. Have you thought about how this kind of building on your last comments, have you thought about how you're going to maintain the basic integrity of the basic structure of the work while simultaneously supporting creativity? Sure. Yeah, that's, uh, that came up, you know, when I was finishing the book, the first edition of the book, you know, and I had a decision to make about well, which oils should I tell people to use? Because I had experimented lots of different things and there, you know, a lot of things that were working uh, but I knew that if I just say, oh, use whatever oil you, you like, people either, A, they wouldn't do it because they wouldn't feel like it was a specific enough instruction, or they'd go off and use some weird oil that would be toxic. So uh, the decision, first of all, was to only use the Young Living oils because I know what they do, and I know, you know, it, it's a predictable um, uh, product, just like a pharmaceutical company when they're doing a, uh, a study, they're going to say, you're going to use this specific pill because this is what we're testing. So you know, they're young living oils that we're using. And then um, I say, use, use them as I, as I initially proposed, frankincense, lavender, stress away. I have the research in the book that explains why those are good oils to use. It's a reliable result uh, for the second round. I'd love people to use inner child. Now, it doesn't mean that another oil might not work, but uh, the inner child for so many people connects people with kind of that inner sense of who they are. And especially if the memory is connected with a sense of uh, sadness or longing or loss of love, it seems very nurturing. The third round I have people use release oil because the release blend was designed um, to uh, release, especially things like anger, resentment, irritation, you know, Dr. Young created it to work right on the liver. And um, now, what, so, so I have kind of my recipe um, knowing that sometimes someone, it might come in reverse and someone, their anger might come first and then their sadness might come after. I can't predict how it's going to happen, but I say, here's the palette of oils that I know from experience. If you use these oils, you're going to get where you need to go. But then I do tell people, you learn the technique as it is. And when we do the certification, you know, we have people um, do it as we teach it. And then once they've mastered it and they know they can do it that way, I say, you know, but we are infinite beings. And so, um, you know, if you're sitting there doing your process and the, the surrender oil comes into your mind or the, um, or the inspiration oil comes into your mind and it's sitting right there in front of you, yeah, grab that and smell that. And, you know, eventually, ultimately, we're just guiding people back to their own intuition. And a person might intuitively uh, get a feeling like, I really need that cinnamon oil right now because I 
just for whatever reason, I just feel drawn to it. So learn the technique first. Once you're, once you're familiar with the technique and you're doing it effectively, then you can improvise. Okay. Well, let's talk about your relationship with Young Living. Um, Young Living is a, a company that produces high-quality essential oils. It's been around for several decades. It's a network marketing company. And um, do you have – what is your formal relationship with Young Living? And is Young Living interested in working with you to develop a low-cost uh, kit for people that want to do aroma freedom technique, I think it would be good to be completely transparent about yes. your relationship with Young Living and the whole network marketing conversation uh, because it's going to come up. So we might as well just yep just talk yeah. about it. Tackle it head on. Thank you for asking that question because yeah, people do sometimes they make assumptions or they wonder what's going on. So. Right. Uh, yeah, so my wife and I, we, we enrolled with Young Living about almost 16 years ago. And for us, we weren't really looking for a business. It was just something we came across and we liked how they worked. So we used them. Um, and then over the years, you know, different people would say, oh, well, what about this company or that company? Or for us, it wasn't really about that. You know, Young Living, uh, our relationship with them. So we're distributors. We have, uh, we're platinum distributors. And we, uh, so we have a downline. We have a group of people that uh, we help with the business of Young Living and enrolling them and so on. Um, and then back in 2006 was the first time. And then since then, many times Young Living has hired me as a, um, as a trainer to come to the convention or they sent me to Japan and other places uh, to teach to Young Living people about how to use the oils for emotional balance uh, or for brain health or for different things that I've done. Um, I'm not an employee of Young Living though, so there's not a formal relationship beyond just being an independent distributor. Um, but I have had conversations with them because I work with so many, especially since Aroma Freedom Technique came out, I'm working continuously with other people who are using Young Living who are not in my group. So I'm not getting specifically any compensation for the fact that they might get the Young Living oils. Uh, so that it, the relationship is really based on loyalty and trust as well, because I, I've been to the farms and I've uh, seen, you know, how they preserve the quality of it. And I've seen, you know, what some of the other companies, you know, may claim or not. There's a lot of debate out there about who's doing what. Uh, but I feel very confident that Young Living is the only oils that I'm recommending for this because of the quality. Um, so people, another question people will, it'll come up. So I'll just mention it here. People will say, well, have you ever signed up any of your clients, uh, your psychology clients? Um, I don't have an active psychology practice now, but for many years I did. And what would happen when I uh, would be talking about oils, maybe do a, do a process with them and they really liked it, I would encourage them to come to a class. And that was a different context. So I was getting them, I wasn't spending time in my therapy session, signing them up or teaching them how to do a grow a young living business. I would say, well, we're doing a class next week. Why don't you come there? And then it's a different context. Then it's a group of people all learning together how to um, empower themselves. So um, that's how I handled that issue. Um, and that's always worked really well for me. And I, I encourage people out there, if you're a practitioner, a psychotherapist or something like that, it's kind of a personal ethical decision in my view. Um, if you are able to have discernment and um, you know, 
bring people in who can benefit from it, who can learn the information and use it themselves, then that's fine. But, you know, in my view, I'm kind of no longer in that doctor-patient relationship with them once they're using the oils. So I don't know if that answered all your questions or not. So just to recap and clarify, your fiduciary connection with Young Living so far, I hear, is there's two aspects of it. One is you get an income as a distributor mm -hmm. based on the volume that moves through your group. Mm -hmm. And then you've also gotten paid from time to time as a speaker yes. or presenter. Yes. Are, are, in terms of the future about setting up a, a possible aroma freedom technique kit with Young Living, would you be just wanting them to offer that or would you be wanting some kind of a royalty arrangement there? Right. Yeah. Thank you. So, so the third part, which hasn't happened yet, but I've, I've had some discussions with them uh, because so many people, they do the aroma freedom technique. And I tell people that you can use it to introduce people to essential oils where you would take them through an a, AFT process. They experience the benefit, they're excited. And then you could say, and here's your oils and here's how you get started and I can help you. So I've approached Young Living with this idea. And that if we had an AFT kit, I would envision it as being a kit that would that would include some instructions so that it's kind of this standalone self-transformation um, technology that comes in a kit that has the oils and has uh, probably not a DVD anymore, but just an online YouTube or something and a little sheet explaining how to use it. Uh, you know, at that point, if, if they were to move forward with that, then yeah, I would form some type of a partnership with them um, on that. The feedback I've gotten so far uh, from people in Young Living is uh, they're excited to see how it's developing and um, they're kind of waiting to see uh, how much interest there is, you know, how many members are being trained and using it so that if there's enough interest in a kit, then they would probably move forward. Great, great. So I think that handles the blah, 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 blah in the back of people's minds. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit again. So there's been, I'm going to tell you things you already know. There, there's been a tremendous breakthrough over the last 20 years in brain science and neuroscience in terms of understanding, number one, understanding how memories are formed and how memories can actually be altered at the neurological level. And then there's also been a tremendous amount a breakthrough in understanding that the heart and the gut, uh, the more we understand about them, that they really exhibit, um, from a cybernetic point of view, they exhibit a lot of properties of being a brain of their own. Mm -hmm. and that It's a validation of many spiritual traditions over thousands of years that have painted a picture for human beings of really being a synergy of head knowledge, heart knowledge, and gut knowledge. And it intuitively makes sense when you start to look at it because it's pretty easy for people to see that sometimes they have a gut sense of something, sometimes they have a feeling in their heart, and sometimes they just have a knowing in their head. So it's, it's, it's existentially easily verifiable that this could be a very valid, useful model. And so because of the breakthroughs that have occurred in neurology, um, uh, leading edge change agents, therapists, coaches, 
have either because they know this or because they came to it on their own and then it was later validated by neuroscience are now getting a very clear understanding of how to foster transformational shifts as opposed to uh, a more Newtonian model of uh, conditioning, 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 because in that model, you're always going to get some form of blowback. And so most of the time, um, that blowback isn't handled. And so you end up with a person who is trying to make a lot of changes, but there's a quality of effortfulness mm -hmm. and taking a lot of time and forcefulness. And so you get a lot of people who quit. You get a lot of people who reach a plateau. You get a lot of people that end up blaming themselves because it's not working. And now we're getting neuroscience validation for that there are certain conditions that need to be met in consciousness where there's this window, this five-hour window in the brain where if these conditions are met, memory, not autobiographical memory, like not in the sense that you would have amnesia and forget mm -hmm. that it happened, but, in, but emotional memory in terms of uh, emotional trauma that would limit perception or would limit the ability to act. Um, or that would limit one's ability to be at peace or to think clearly. There have been enormous breakthroughs in the last 20 years, so we understand what conditions are needed. And one of the things that I immediately thought of when I was exposed to your work, it was I felt compelled to share this information with you because I didn't know if you knew it, and I thought that if you knew it, it would, number one, validate your work, and number two, maybe catalyze your creativity even more for where you could go with it. So with that as a segue, I want to invite you, if you're willing, to talk about what your understanding is now of memory reconsolidation and how it relates to your work in the 12 steps and what impact it's had on you and what impact you foresee that it may have in the future development of your work. Yes, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, and I really appreciate you. You've brought a new dimension. You made me aware of some research that I was not aware of, and it did exactly that. It validated why what I had proposed, why it actually works, and by seeing why it works gives us some ideas. So I'll start, let me start first just by saying how I have always described what happens, and that is that when we are growing up, we're always developing a model of who we are. So every experience we have, we're going to develop a belief about myself, about the world, about life. It, that's the child's job, basically. It's a survival job to know I'm this and I'm not that. The world is safe. The world is dangerous, whatever it might be. So, um, and then what I say is that when we are going through and setting our goals, sometimes we have to modify those perceptions. And so we go back and the memory itself seems to kind of dissolve. Not that the memory is gone, but there's not an emotional charge to it. So what you're talking about is this process of memory reconsolidation and it's Bruce Ecker's work and, and uh, maybe some others as well who synthesized this, but there's um, some animal work as well as some, uh, some human uh, studies that basically say that um, the purpose of a memory and an implicit memory, let's say a child was exposed to a harsh environment and learned that 
the world is unsafe because that was a survival learning. I need um, to interrupt you for a minute. So when you use the word implicit memory, it's not that the child has the conscious thought, this world is unsafe, but the world does occur to them that way, even though they maybe can't language it that way and they may not consciously know that they're, that they're concluding that it's still a kind of learning and that's what you're calling implicit learning. And that is a lot of what traditionally psychotherapists deal with the realm of this implicit learning. Right. That's right. These are the assumptions that we make about life without realizing that we're making these assumptions. So, uh, right. It's not a conscious map. It's a, we'll call it a subconscious map of, of how the world is because included in that memory is an expectation for how the world will be. So, it's an implicit understanding that not only was the world unsafe when I was a child, but the world will be unsafe as I'm an adult going into it. And therefore I better protect myself. Therefore I better avoid relationships. So uh, we develop our personality structure actually as a way is based. Our personality basically is this structure built on these implicit beliefs about life, about who I am and who the world is. So we're going into our life with this set of assumptions, some of which serve us. Maybe if we learn that we're smart, that, that we're gonna continue our education because we know we can do it. But if we learn that we're stupid, then we're gonna not do any more education because we assume we can't. So all of these implicit assumptions about life are kind of, in a sense, that's our prison, the prison that we're living within. And um, what the brain science research has been finding is that if this uh, implicit memory can be activated and not just consciously, but actually felt. So you actually can feel what that feels like to be assuming the world is unsafe, just as an example. Um, there's a window of time where the neurons are kind of in this, I don't know how else to say it, but kind of like this curious state, like, well, is that really true? Or maybe that's not how things are. Maybe things can be updated. And this is part of learning. You know, there's that saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's kind of like that. We generally speaking, a lot of what we learn, it remains locked down not to be changed, but there are some conditions and the conditions are what they're learning. The conditions are identifying the structure of the, the uh, thought process along with how it feels and how it feels in your body when you have that. So with my 12 steps, that's step two, three, and four is the thought, the feeling, and the feeling in the body totally not even knowing this research. This is what was so interesting when you sent me those articles because um, I, was ident I was creating those conditions for change by getting the thought, the feeling, feeling in the body, and then the memory, all those together. Now what I was doing and what I do is I then take the next piece, which is what's called the mismatch. Um, when, those, when that learning is activated, if you can then somehow realize that that's actually not accurate to how the world is now, your brain will rewire and they'll say, okay, I guess that's not accurate now. I guess it was dangerous then, but it's safe now because now I can feel this experience of safety. And so I guess it's no longer accurate to say that the world is dangerous because there's times when I'm safe. Uh, and what I do is um, by smelling the essential oil and it's triggering those smell receptors, which can trigger either an alarm response or a relaxation response, by triggering those feelings of calmness, it, it disconfirms that, that implicit understanding that the world is dangerous. And so that whole thing kind of breaks apart. And then there's an opportunity to reprogram. Um, and what you know, some of these other neuroscientists are doing and, and psychotherapists is they're saying, okay, 
So now you realize that the world isn't always like that, but sometimes can be this other way. So now you can put in more of a conscious understanding of how it is. The way I do that is uh, once the negative voices are gone, the memories dissolved, I say, okay, now let's set an affirmation that expresses how, uh, what you just learned, what you just realized. So it could be this realization that I am safe or the world supports me or uh, I love people and people love me. Whatever it is that kind of comes in that moment, that becomes uh, your new reality. Now, interestingly, I, um, when I wrote the book a little over a year ago, I, I said, um, I want people to say for at least three days, you know, up to a week or whatever it is, um, until it really feels anchored. And a couple months ago, I was uh, at a, a lecture by Greg Braden, and he had on the screen a uh, picture of a neuron that was reaching out for another neuron. And it was this time-lapse photography, and you could see it reaching out and trying to form new connections. And he said, the scientists have discovered it takes three days for a new neural pathway to, to become hardwired. And I thought, wow, well, so I had been telling people, this is my intuition that was telling me, you know, tell them to do it for three days. And now the science is saying it takes three days to wire it. But another thing that I, I always tell people, you know, a lot of people like to use affirmations and affirmations, you know, going back to Louise Hay and other people, uh, a lot of people use them and they can be very helpful. And affirmation is basically a statement of how you would like to believe the idea being that if you say it often enough, it's going to rewire your brain. And then people got more sophisticated and said, well, you need to say it with feeling and with conviction. That's true as well. The more feeling and conviction you can say it with, the more likely it is to rewire. Um, and my perspective on that is that uh, affirmations are good, but if, there's a, if you haven't cleared out whatever the opposite of the affirmation is, the negative thoughts in your head that are telling you that's not true, there's going to be this fight happening in your brain. So you are affirming I am abundant. And then your back of your brain is saying, yeah, but you're in debt. And you say, no, I'm affirming that I'm abundant. And the back of your head is saying, you're not worth it. So it's this constant fight. What we do with the aroma freedom is we, first we work on, we clear away the negative voices. And we literally go until there is not a negative voice. When you say I am abundant, your brain is just like, yeah, just like there's no, nothing arguing against that. So then you're in kind of a fertile ground for, then you can plant the seed of, here's my affirmation that I want to rewire in that direction. That is so beautiful and it's so elegant. Um, and it matches my experience of, I think where people get in trouble with affirmations, it's like you're saying, when they use it in a forceful way, like a sledgehammer. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think it's much better to use it as a exploration of a possibility and either you resonate with it or it brings up the opposite. And then you need a way of being and working with the opposite. You know, one way of doing it is like you're describing so that it's less likely for any opposites to come up because you've already cleared it out. Mm -hmm. Or you need some technique to embrace this material that comes up the opposite stuff. And there's different yeah. approaches for doing that as well. And so... Um, and then, of course, for people that are auditory, affirmations can be very powerful because they're speaking and they're hearing, whereas, you know, maybe somebody who is more visual, maybe uh, it works for them more to maybe to have a visual image mm -hmm. or like that. But the, the principle of the affirmation not being part of the 
kind of consciousness, but more like, oh, what if this was possible? Like a probe, like trying this on for size, and then, and then tracking your own experience in the body, in the belly, in the heart, in the, in the head, and seeing if it resonates or, or using it as a way to um, expose the resistance and then welcome the resistance and then have ways of working with that. I really think that that meta model is the key to handling what people call resistance in an artful way. And the structure of your approach where you start with a goal and then it brings up the resistance and then you work with the resistance in this mindful, compassionate way. You're already embodying what I'm saying. And, you know, there's a, there's a profound wisdom and sophistication to your model that, you know, most lay people will not appreciate, but that's totally okay because that's not the point. Yeah. I'll also mention that, um, uh, there are two main states that an organism can be in. They can either be in a growth and learning state or a defense and withdrawal state. And that's true whether you go back to a single cell protozoa is going to be swimming around in the soup until it encounters looking for food, we'll say, or warmth or whatever it likes. Until it encounters something, a poison or a chemical or a, uh, something, a virus, and then it retreats. So we're all of us, single cell organisms all the way up to us, are in that same boat. We're and look at a child. I use the analogy of a child that first learns to crawl, and the child is just crawling wherever they can, right? It's this, this drive we have for exploration of our environment and just to kind of see what, what life's about. And they go until they encounter something that pushes them back, whether they hit a wall, they can't go any further, they touch a hot stove and they recoil, uh, something happens or they get yelled at and they pull back. And so then there's this interplay between growth and learning or defense and withdrawal. So what happens is in life, we, we have all these experiences and we kind of reach the limit of what's gonna cause pain and then we pull back. So we kind of have this, this map of like, if I'm within this boundary, I'm safe. But if I go beyond this boundary, then there's danger. So then, then there's, um, so what we're doing is we're finding, we're saying, okay, well, let's try. And this is where you had mentioned the heart wisdom. You know, I hadn't put it this way until you kind of cast what I was doing in a different light. And you said, well, we're really kind of starting from the heart. I mean, the, the subtitle of the book is about realizing your heart's desire. Like my goal, my heart's desire was to write a book. I had always known I wanted to write a book. I really, not, not everyone's desire, but that was mine. And so because I had that, then whatever the thoughts were in my head that said that's not possible are holding me back from that. So we all have this. Uh, this heart's desire, and that's really where we need to start because um, if someone just makes up something out of the blue, oh, I want to make a million dollars. Well, that may not be what they really want. They may really want a loving relationship or they may really just want peace. Um, so it's important that people start from this sense of, of what they want. And then, and then we work with, like you said, we work with the resistance that we become aware of. Um, I pull from a lot of different, uh, that could be a whole other discussion, go, cataloging all the different psychological theories where each one of them fits in this. But I did study with someone who has studied with Eugene Gendlin, who developed focusing. And a lot of the somatic psychotherapy concepts would start with, for instance, visualizing 
a person and then, or saying something and then scan your body and notice where you feel any tension or tightness. So if you say, if I say visualize your parents right now and how do you feel in your body when you visualize them and you feel some pain in your heart or you feel some knot in your gut, that's telling us that there's something within you that freezes up when you imagine that. And now, so we have a way, there's lots of methods, but so AFT, we would then, okay, so we work with that to find out what is resisting because that's that part of you that is not in growth and learning anymore, but is in that fear and withdrawal. So just one last piece on this, I know it's a long, long-winded answer, but um, so many people have issues related to learning because almost everyone has a bad school experience story they can tell. For some people, it's because maybe at that time they should have been labeled learning disabled and given help and they weren't and uh, or they couldn't keep up with the class or maybe they did great in class, but they felt awkward socially. They had some experience in their school years that caused them to pull back in some ways. So I always encourage people to ask questions related to, uh, well, what was school like for you? And and uh, because a lot of people stop learning and now we work, technology is moving so quickly that a lot of people who did fine with a certain level of technology are feeling like, I can't learn one more thing. I can't master Facebook. I can't master YouTube. I can't, whatever it is, we work with stuff like that. And we say, okay, well, let's set a goal of being able to set up your Facebook account or whatever it is, clearing out the, and very often we'll go back to a childhood memory of some time when they couldn't learn something clear that out, put people back in a growth and learning process. And they're just like, okay, if I don't understand, I'll ask someone who does and I'll figure it out. Like the attitude shifts into one of no big deal. It's great. So uh, I'm feeling it's probably good to start to move this conversation to a close, but I would love to, if you're willing, I'd love to sometime soon have a second conversation with you where we, do a couple where we do a few things. One is we actually can use me as a guinea pig and we can actually do a session so people find out how quick and easy it is. Mm-hmm. And then also, the more we're talking, the more excited I'm getting about a much broader conversation. And that would be the ontological and sociological implications and potential applications of your work. Because I think if you uh, extend the foundations of where you're coming from, it has some pretty far-reaching and powerful implications for the possibility of human beings and for the possibility of, of human community in human society and um, if you're willing to go there I think that could be a really juicy conversation especially in the context of people having a taste of the work yeah absolutely so first of all yeah I'd be happy to do a session with you right so everyone can see how quick it works and um, how simple it is and then I do think about that all the time um, you know what would it be like if everyone realized that the things that they want in life, they can actually, doesn't mean that it's a guarantee that everyone can get everything they want, but it means they can, they can move towards it. They can take the steps in that direction instead of procrastinating or instead of feeling, Oh, that's out of reach for me. You know, what would happen if people in a frustrated relationship realize 
there are steps I can take to actually uh, get this moving in the right direction. Or if they're feeling stuck in their career, there's actually a step I can take to release my energy so I can move it in the positive direction. So yeah, the, the implications are broad and uh, I'm just thrilled with the opportunity to, to share it with the world. And, and then also I, I do want the mental health field to uh, learn about this and learn how to integrate because um, no guarantees, but I've had people tell me that one session did more for them than 10 years of therapy. I'm not saying it's always the case, but you know, there, people need tools and um, I would love nothing more than to see the professionals working with people use whatever part of this makes sense uh, in their context uh, to just help people move quicker. And I think that, you know, humanity, to speak idealistically for a minute, you know, humanity can be moving into a new age beyond survival is really what we want. We want to get beyond survival to actually where people are actualizing their dreams and they're living at their, at a higher potential. I call that thrival. Nice. So um, I want to give you a chance to cover two more things. Number one is anything else you'd like to say in closing at all. And then number two, to please give out whatever contact information, websites, uh, email addresses, phone number, anything you want to give out for people that are say, hey, this is really cool. I, I want to know more. Um, and uh, one other thing I would like to have you address before we close it out, and that is that because of the uh, current legal situation in the United States, uh, unless we're in a private setting, we don't really have the freedom to speak freely about the power of essential oils. Um, have you thought about starting a private group where we can speak freely and maximize our understanding and use of the oils? Sure. So a couple things is the best way to reach me. My website is www.aromafreedom.com. Uh, and that's where you can get my books. I have my book, my quick guide. I have some DVDs. And um, you can also register for certification classes. And then my other website is www.aromafreedomacademy.com. And that's where I have the certification classes I teach, as well as my students teach their variety of classes, uh, all that use AFT as, as the core. So those two websites are the best way to reach me. Um, uh, email address, just info at aromafreedom.com. Uh, can reach me that well that way. Um, Facebook, good to follow me at Benjamin Perkis. Um, and I have a Facebook group, which is um, Aroma Freedom Academy Facebook group. Now that is a private group. So by definition, it's something that it's not public, but you can ask to be added. Once you're added, you can ask whatever question you like, and we can have the conversation go in whatever way it needs to go. Of course, when people are in the certification classes, it's also a private, you know, uh, experience to ask what you want. And I did start a, for, for mental health professionals, there's a Facebook group called um, AFT for Mental Health Professionals. And this is for the mental health professionals to have that conversation about um, how might we use it with particular diagnoses. Because just as a reminder, AFT is not a therapy in itself. It's not, you know, diagnosing or prescribing or meant to be used for any specific mental diagnosis. But if you're a trained professional, you can integrate it 
uh, in your work with clients. So I'll just put those things in there. Great. Um, any last words or do you, are, you, are you feel complete or? I'm complete. I'm just glad to have the conversation. I want to thank you, David, for all the work you do to enlighten humanity. And um, uh, just let me know. I'll be happy to uh, work with you again. And uh, anyone else who's listening, um, I hope you get great benefit from this. And please reach out if you have any questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Perkis. Oh, you might want to spell your last name for people. Oh, thank you. So uh, it's Perkis, P-E-R-K-U-S, Perkis. All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another edition or watching another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, where we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. Our special guest today has been Dr. Benjamin Perkis, and we've been talking about Aroma Freedom Technique, and I am going to call this episode Aroma Freedom Technique part one, because I'm excited that we are going to have a part two later. So with that, we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes, go to cuttingedgedoc.com. That's cuttingedgedoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.